Hi, Color Code listeners. It's me, Denise Balkasoon. So, guys, this series is coming to an end. We have two episodes left. Uh, the very last one is a feedback episode. So if you have thoughts about the show so far, please send us a voice memo at colorcode at globamail.com. We're taking a break this week to make sure that those last two episodes are really great. And instead of Color Code, today you'll hear an episode from another podcast series, one called Gravy by the Southern Foodways Alliance. It's an awesome show that explores the changing American South by examining food and culinary culture. This episode is called The Cajun Reconnection and explores the culinary and cultural links between American Cajuns and Eastern Canada's Acadia. We'd like to thank the team at Gravy and the Southern Foodways Alliance for letting us share it with you. Enjoy it! In a lot of ways, Eastern Canada and the Deep South could seem to have almost nothing in common. But there is a line of communication or of communion that begins in Nova Scotia with the other end in Louisiana. And one of the most beloved forms of exchange between the two places is food. It was heartwarming and hilarious to see the crowds of Acadians just, you know, fascinated by this long-lost sister food, but sweating up a storm after the first three bites. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm Tina Antolini. Today, a story of relationships that are 250 years old, between a region far north and one in the deep south. Simon Thibault has never eaten a pot of jambalaya or danced at a fait dodo, but he feels he knows that he is connected to the place they come from, Louisiana. Simon is Acadian, a descendant of the first French settlers of Nova Scotia and parts of the Canadian Maritimes, and that's where he still lives. He brings us the story of how these two communities got separated and how they're connecting again through food. You may think what you're hearing is noise, but really, it's a proclamation. What you're hearing is called a tantamar. A steady stream of cars, trucks, fire engines, and tractor trailers have been traveling along the main road, going from village to village, telling the residents to stand up and make as much racket as possible. Every 15th of August, Acadians throughout Canada's maritime provinces remind the world that they're still here. I'm visiting with my family this week, and the Tantamar is part of the Festival Acadien de Clare, or the Clare Acadian Festival. It's the oldest Acadian festival in the world, and it takes place in this small collection of French-speaking villages in southwestern Nova Scotia. The signs that spell out the names of the villages tend to be in both English and French. Church Point, where I grew up, is also known as Pointe de l'Église, there are also a couple of villages named after their founders. There is a Comoville, a Sonyaville. Those names, those family names, have an echo that resounds over 2,000 miles away in Cajun country. Cajuns have a strong Acadian element in our, in our background. We have a lot of some, uh, same family names. Uh, you know, Robichaud, Thibodeau, Saunier, Como, Bro, Broussard. That's Barry Ancelet. 
He's a folklorist, a scholar of Cajun culture, and a professor emeritus at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. If you look in a phone book or you go to a cemetery uh, in Church Point, Nova Scotia or Church Point, Louisiana, you, you'll be astonished to see so many of the same names, same family names. Barry Ancelet is known throughout both Acadies. The Acadie, which comprises Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island here in Canada, and Acadia, or l'Acadie Tropicale, in Louisiana. Cajuns are, to some extent, the descendants of the Acadians who came to Louisiana after having been exiled from what is now Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, beginning in 1755. Uh, some of the Acadians began to arrive in Louisiana in 1765, 250 years ago this year. That exile that Barry mentioned? In the mid-1700s, Acadian families throughout Atlantic Canada were forcibly removed from their land when they refused to swear an oath to England. And so they were dispersed throughout ports of the Atlantic, from Boston to France, and even throughout the Caribbean. That exile is known amongst Acadians as Le Grand Dérangement. It's a defining moment in the history of the Acadians and Cajuns. It's where our families were ripped apart. Many Acadian families ended up in Louisiana since it was still under French rule. They'd heard that many of their lost brethren had started a new home in Louisiana. In the mid-1800s, the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote Evangeline, a tale of Acadie. In this melodramatic story of star-crossed lovers, one woman, Evangeline, spends her entire life and the entire poem looking for her missing lover, Gabriel. She finds him on his deathbed. Thankfully, the story of the Acadians and Cajuns is a little less melancholy. In fact, it's really one of resilience. There was this memory, this lasting memory, of where they had come from, where their ancestors had come from. The, the exile was obviously a, a traumatic experience for the Acadian uh, society. Remarkably, there was a lasting sense of identity, a lasting connection to that story. Barry's not being glib when he mentions that lasting connection. Acadians have long memories. I once met an elderly gentleman who remembers his grandfather speaking about his own grandfather, who'd been part of the exile. He still cried about it years later. Then in the 20th century, early in the 20th century, some Cajuns from Louisiana began to explore reconnection with the Acadian societies of the Canadian Maritimes. Just to jump in here, those connections he's talking about, my great uncle, Francois Comeau, helped foster them. I have a photograph of him standing with a group of Cajun women wearing traditional Acadian costumes and sashes printed with the names of their hometowns. And those family connections, they're gonna come up a lot in this story. But back to Barry. He says in 1955, many Louisianans traveled up to Canada to mark the 200th anniversary of the exile. A reopening of that connection was established and what was remarkable was that we still shared so many identity traits. Not, o not only family names, but the way we speak and people from here who went up there came back saying, wow, I mean, they, I recognize them as cousins. But even as commonalities were recognized, there were also some substantial differences. The Cajuns had lived a very different narrative from us up north. It's important to understand that the Acadians who came here 
found themselves living alongside French who were already here, Africans who were here, Native Americans, Spaniards, and later Germans, and of course later Anglo-Americans, and all of those came to produce a cultural and ethnic fusion that it's useful to refer to as Cajun as opposed to Acadian. In the South, the influence of African-American cuisine can easily be found in gumbo, the word itself reflecting its African roots. Rice was also prevalent in the Cajun larder. We Acadians up north had different cultures influencing us. Many Acadian communities were surrounded by people of English, Scottish, and Irish ancestry, not to mention the local indigenous populations. Acadian larders were full of potatoes, many a root vegetable, and next to no spices. A good metaphor for distinction between Acadian and Cajun food is the same distinction in music. Their music is more influenced by Irish and old-time country and bluegrass rather than the blues and rock and roll like it is here. There are some interesting differences. What's interesting about that is in the ways that we are still similar. It tells us a very powerful story about the enduring nature of our cultural heritage. In the ways that we are different, it tells an equally powerful story about ongoing cultural evolution in both places. It's a little bit like twins separated at birth who, who run into each other as uh, 20-year-olds. Barry himself was able to encounter some of those differences and similarities when he traveled to Nova Scotia in the 1970s. He'd just gone to an Acadian conference in New Brunswick and was offered the opportunity to visit the Acadian community of Clare, the one where that Tantamar was happening at the beginning of the story and where I grew up. I didn't know anybody there, but I was taken to, taken to the home of Germain Como. Again, a family relation. Germain's grandmother was a half-sister to my great-grandfather. And I offered to make a gumbo because there was going to be a gathering of uh, lots of friends uh, at her house. Uh, so she turned her kitchen over to me and I made a gumbo. I think that might have been the first gumbo that was ever made there. Barry's gumbo was really popular, even though it did leave a few Acadians wiping their brows. But it's not just the heat of the food that brings many an Acadian to sweat. Barry discovered this when noted Acadian writer Gerald LeBlanc came to visit him in Louisiana. He got here at night. I picked him up at the air, in the air-conditioned airport in my air-conditioned car and took him to his air-conditioned hotel room and picked him up very early in the morning, the next morning, in my air-conditioned car and took him to my air-conditioned academic building here on campus. And then we went out to lunch at noon. And when he hit, when it was August, when he hit the heat, of midday Louisiana, he turned to me and said, oh, now I understand Clifton Chenier. For those of you not in the know, this is Clifton Chenier, one of the kings of Zydeco, that hybrid of Cajun and Creole music. Coming up, young Acadians get initiated in the ways of the boucherie, Hint, it involves slaughtering pigs. And Acadian food travels south, gumbo settles in up north. That's ahead. There is the donor music. So Jean-Paul Bourgeois grew up on Bayou Lafourche in Louisiana, 
but his culinary career took him into kitchens in New York City, including those with Danny Meyer's restaurants with the Union Square Hospitality Group. Uh, I was working at Maialino, a Roman Italian restaurant, and I love those guys, but I had never been to Italy before. And it came to time where I, I sat down with Danny, I said, you know, you know, I want to come home. Not literally home, just the flavors of it. So when he became chef at another one of the group's restaurants, Blue Smoke, he made sure there were things on the menu like the preservation plate. And that goes from anything from making duck ham to beef jerky. Wait, duck ham? <laughs> Can you explain? <laughs> duck ham. So we use mallard duck breath from, from Hudson Valley Farms. We're using tried and true preservation methods of brining and smoking just with really great ham brine on mallard duck breast something that I grew up hunting. Bring it full circle, brine it, smoke it, and slice it. You can learn more about their southern offerings at bluesmoke.com. Now, back to Simon Thibault. Barry Ancelet's impact on Cajun-Acadian relations has gone beyond gumbo. He also made connections with people at University Saint Anne. That's Nova Scotia's only Francophone university, located in Pointe de l'Eglise. It's where Georgette LeBlanc was doing research one semester on Acadian music. I was really, I was knee-deep in the archives and then found Barry Osler's book where he'd interviewed Acadian musicians and transcribed the interviews in Cajun French without translating them into standard French. So I called him and said, I want to study with you. That thing Georgette mentioned about Barry transcribing the way those Cajuns spoke without translating it into a more standard French... That's kind of how Georgette has made a name for herself. La Grace. Georgette's poetry has earned her some of the most esteemed literary prizes in Canada. And all of it is written in the vernacular French spoken in the community where she grew up. La boucherie. La première mort de le jeune. Comme pour prendre sa place dans le cimetière. You see, that's the thing with Acadians in Canada. We kept our language, unlike our Cajun counterparts. They were forbidden from speaking Cajun French in schools, but have been trying to revitalize the language for the past few decades. Yes, we in Canada were ashamed at times by the way that we spoke, but our language became the main way that Acadians differentiated themselves from their English-speaking neighbors. Rachel Dugas had a hard time understanding how language wasn't the defining mark of a Cajun. Rochelle is Georgette's cousin and now lives in Lafayette, Louisiana. She grew up in a small Nova Scotian village called Concession in a blended family, meaning that her father was Acadian and her mom was an Anglophone. But in her house, French was the predominant language, and being Acadian meant being tied to your native tongue. And for the most part, that's not how it is in Lafayette. When I got there, I was like, but how are you going to defend your culture if you're not speaking French, you yeah. know? It's not an either-or. No, 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 no. It doesn't, like, for us, it's a defining thing. It's our language. It's our last, like, barrier, and it's a big deal. And for them, it's all about... Fish fry. Yeah. Uh, crawfish boils, uh, you know, la boucherie. Oh, yeah, la boucherie. Traditionally, it was where people got together in the fall to help slaughter and prepare a pig for the oncoming winter. Nowadays, it's celebrated with festivals and more pork than you can shake a fork and knife at. Here in Nova Scotia, boucheries don't exist, and festivals around Acadian food are pretty much non-existent, too. There were festivals based around storytelling, poetry, and of course music, showing that we express ourselves by what comes out of our mouths. 
Cajuns are just as likely to express themselves by what goes in them. Gradually, Rochelle and Georgette began to notice that Cajuns not only have different ingredients, but different habits when it comes to who was in the kitchen. In Acadian kitchens, it's typically the women. In Cajun country, women are involved. But men um, seem to really enjoy showing off their prowess with sauces, barbecue. Yeah, uh, cooking with the cot or shot or a lot yeah. more hunting. Yeah, they just they, they like catching it and cooking it and talking about how they yeah. did both. <laughs> <laughs> Rochelle and Georgette may have gotten used to eating and cooking with their Cajun brethren, but what about the other side of the equation? When I spoke with Acadians from Nova Scotia about Cajun food, every single one of them told me I had to talk to a native Louisianan named Lucius Fontenot. Lucius is known amongst his friends as an excellent cook, unafraid to talk about anything from making a roux to how to take apart a pig for a boucherie. He has met and introduced many an Acadian to Cajun cuisine. When they tasted Cajun food, they, uh, they needed lots of water, a handkerchief to wipe the sweat off their brow. Really, it was funny because it was almost stereotypical. They couldn't believe how hot our food was while the rest of us were just steady eating this bowl of gumbo or crawfish etouffee or whatever, thinking, you know, it's probably a little less seasoned than uh, we would normally eat it because we had guests over. I was curious as to how Lucius handled the flavors of Acadian food. For example, poutine râpé, a baseball-sized potato dumpling stuffed with a chunk of salt pork inside, is very popular in parts of New Brunswick. Mark Como had made some, and he called it, uh, this is our version of gumbo. And uh, all the people from Louisiana were, were tasting it, and were just like, well, this is absolutely nothing like gumbo, and it has very, very little seasoning. When it comes to seasonings, Acadians traditionally have your choice of salt, pepper, maybe some scallions preserved in salt. That's your pantry. This is not to say that Lucius was completely turned off by Acadian food. He liked frico, this hearty stew of meat and root vegetables with smaller potato dumplings like the ones in the poutine. He just thought it could use a little Cajun flair. Some of the dishes I've remade and other people have remade like frico, and uh, the only thing we've done to it is just like add Cajun seasonings that we normally add, which would mainly be a lot of like black and red pepper and salt. Acadians have been learning how to cook Cajun food too. Carmen Dontremont moved from Nova Scotia to do her master's at University of Louisiana at Lafayette. She often found herself invited by many a Cajun who found out that she was Acadian. But her most memorable meal was served by a woman named Ethel May Bork. Carmen and two of her fellow students had gone to visit Ethel as part of their research. From what I remember, I remember driving up this long driveway in this large, empty field, driving up to a small trailer. I remember seeing little sheds and a few farm animals like hens. And I meet this rather large woman who seems to have a huge presence. And as soon as she realizes that it's the two boys that she knows with the Canadian. She has a big smile on her face, and you can see that she's excited to uh, share her stories with a Canadian. Ethel seems so excited to have a visitor that she apparently didn't have much time to tidy. She passes Carmen a broom and asks her to help sweep up. 
So that's what she does. Sweep up the feathers on the floor. So this lady wanted to be hospitable, and she really wanted to make me a gumbo. It was probably one of the most authentic gumbo that I ever tasted, but maybe too authentic. What do you mean by too authentic? I seem to have found what looked like a chicken foot in the gumbo. As I'm taking a bite of this gumbo, and I'm realizing that some of the chickens I saw outside, probably one of them, had been sacrificed to be in this gumbo that she prepared for me. As I'm taking another bite, I'm realizing that what I had been sweeping on the floor earlier were the chicken's feathers. After she graduated from university, Carmen's husband came down to help her move her things back to Nova Scotia. But she wanted to bring back more than just her memories of Louisiana. We decided that this time, since we had a car and we weren't flying, we had a lot of room and we would try to bring as many things as we could. So we went and bought a great huge cooler and we filled this cooler with Louisiana smoked sausages. We also had two or three boxes and bags filled with spices, sauces, and other ingredients that we wanted to bring back. But it was more than just the pantry that Carmen brought back to Nova Scotia. She also brought back the feeling of being in Louisiana. We actually started a group that we call Cadien. We get together two or three times a year to play only Cajun music. Uh, but then we needed the big, huge pot of gumbo. And I volunteered. <laughs> she and her husband would invite people to their home for Cajun dinners with giant pots of chicken and sausage gumbo, for which Carmen became somewhat famous. Their parties even caught the attention of a local bar owner during Mardi Gras season. They've been doing their best to laisser les bons temps rouler ever since. With people like Carmen and Lucius, the distance between Nova Scotia and Louisiana has been steadily shrinking with time. Sometimes food is the fastest traveler. But really, blood is thicker than roux. And Barry Ancelay says Cajuns are happy to welcome Acadians into their definition of family. It means belonging to this community. It means participating in the music and the cuisine and the culture and the, and the social exchange. To some extent, it's a DNA issue, you know, it's an ancestry issue, but it's, it's almost as much a matter of the heart. It's a matter of feeling it, of being here and of, uh, of feeling like you're Cajun. To be honest, I don't feel like I'm Cajun. Not yet. It's like Barry said at the beginning of the story. We kind of are like twins separated at birth who run into each other as 20-year-olds. There is that DNA, that shared history. And it doesn't matter if one group almost lost its tongue. It gained so much in its belly. Sometimes it feels as if without a more vibrant food culture, we Acadians have less to gather around than our Cajun cousins do. We here in Acadie could take that lesson to heart, or rather, to stomach. Was there anything that you experienced in that kind of thing that you wish you could transpose back home, that you wish you could bring back home to Acadians? <laughs> Public drinking. 
<laughs> drive through daiquiri and public drinking. <laughs> it would help us kind of relax. <laughs> Laissez les bons temps rouler, indeed. Simon Thibault is a Halifax, Nova Scotia-based journalist, food writer, and radio producer. You can see some of those pictures he mentioned of his Acadian great-uncle standing with a bunch of Cajun women in sashes printed with their hometown names. Those are on our website, southernfoodways.org gravy. Music for this episode was all from either Nova Scotia or Cajun country, and we have Valcour Records to thank for a whole lot of it. It was by the Acadian band Unison and Sebastian Dull. And from Louisiana, music by Cedric Watson et Bijou Creole, Cedric Watson with Corey Lede, Clifton Chenier, Lost Bayou Ramblers, and the band Cobouillon. You can find most of those Louisiana artists and a whole lot more wonderful music at ValcourRecords.com. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. Thanks to CKDU for the use of their studios in Halifax, to Sarah Camp Milam for the editorial help, and to Gravy's intern, Dana Bialik. Coming up, a little taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... If this episode made you long for some Cajun food, know that the Southern Foodways Alliance, the organization that brings you gravy, they can also deliver gumbo. Well, not really deliver you gumbo. But if you visit southernfoodways.org to view The Gumbo Trail, a multimedia presentation of the SFA's documentary work in Cajun country, you will find oral histories with restaurant chefs and home cooks. There's a gumbo primer to help you with your cooking vocabulary, recipes to inspire you in the kitchen, and there is even a short film with instructions on how to make a good roux. You might want to watch that one twice. A roux is the foundation of every good gumbo. While you browse all that the trail has to offer, you might think about a road trip, but consider membership too. SFA memberships make projects like the Gumbo Trail and this podcast possible. You can find us at southernfoodways.org. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, a surprise in the kitchen of an L.A. soul food restaurant. They'd see him, you know, they'd see him, and they wouldn't eat. A lot of them wouldn't eat until I told them that, uh, go ahead and eat, it's okay. They didn't think uh, Mexicans could cook, uh, you know, soul food. Stay tuned for that one next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. Hi, everyone. It's Denise again. So Hannah and I hope you enjoyed that episode of Gravy. Thanks again to the Southern Foodways Alliance for letting us share it with you. Our second last episode of Color Code is next week. We'll be looking back at a tragic accident from 2007, which capped off a series of racial incidents in which an entire town was implicated. And our last episode is all about listener feedback. So don't forget, send us your voice memos and your thoughts at colorcode at globamail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.